Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to our newest edition of Radio Evolve, our webcast, webcast for consciousness and culture. And I'm very honored to have with me Robert Sheldrick from London. Robert, you are in the line? Yes, here I am. Robert, thank you so much. I think um, someone like you really does not need an introduction, but you are definitely one of the most known scientists in the world who has a deep relationship and understanding of consciousness. And you are also very known for your own critique of the uh, limitation of the scientific uh, understanding of science. Your latest book, uh, which you called Science in Spiritual Practice, Transformative Experiences and Their Effects on Our Bodies, Brains and Health, that came out both in English and in German uh, last year, is a book that really uh, brings together two perspectives that usually seem still be on very different continents and very different territory. May I ask you, you as a scientist, and you speaking in a time where we are in the midst of a deeply secular culture. When you talk about spiritual practice, is this something that even makes sense in our secular scientific culture? Isn't that something that basically comes from a different time and doesn't relate to our understanding of life and even our understanding of human health and our deeper human values? Uh, how is it that you think that these two territories, spiritual practice and science can come together? Well, I think um, this is not a wild speculation. It's simply a fact. If we look at the actual statistics of what people are doing, we find that meditation, for example, which is clearly a spiritual practice and has ancient roots in all religious traditions in different forms, um, is now huge. In the United States alone, about 18 million people regularly meditate. And if we look at yoga, which is certainly in India, a kind of spiritual practice expressed through breathing and physical um, means, uh, this has taken off around the entire world with probably hundreds of millions of people doing it. And they're doing it partly for spiritual reasons and partly for health reasons. And in fact, it's not really as if health and spirituality are different or separate because there are no thousands of scientific studies summarized in two very large weighty volumes called the Handbook of Religion and Health, reviewing thousands of papers in peer-reviewed journals that show that people who have religious or spiritual practices are generally speaking happier, healthier, and live longer than those that don't. So this is very much a scientifically showed, demonstrated uh, benefit to health. This uh -huh. leaves open the question of the nature of the spiritual realm because many people who do yoga or meditation are not themselves religious believers. Um, some are even atheists. Um, but this is the modern world we're in. We're in a world where actually many people in a secular world are actually doing spiritual practices. Uh, um, allow me to change my question a little bit uh, and ask you about the nature of a spiritual practice because I mean, it's undoubtedly true what you're saying, that uh, um, uh, meditation is a practice that's very well, uh, widespread. Yoga is a practice that has a huge global hype. 
But not everybody would agree uh, that the people who are practicing this are practicing it as a spiritual practice. It's a kind of a health practice or a mental practice or a, or a body practice. Uh, but you're saying, uh, yes, that's maybe also the case, but they are also spiritual practice. So what is a spiritual practice? And is this hype of meditation and yoga really uh, a revival of spiritual practice? Or is it just something that people take from the traditions and do now in a secular context as kind of a health program that has nothing to do with spirituality anymore? Well, spirituality is about uh, the feeling of connection with something greater than oneself. Okay. And um, I myself might have had a few doubts about whether these could really be called spiritual practices in the modern context. But the interesting thing is that many atheists and secularists themselves call them spiritual practices. For example, Sam Harris, who's one of the so-called new atheists in the United States, is now giving online meditation courses um, and has written a book called about meditation called Waking Up. The subtitle is Spirituality Without Religion. Um, so th th this is actually the new frontier of, of, of new style atheists, that they're not against spiritual practices. In fact, they're trying to take over spiritual practices and show that you can do these in a secular context. So this is very much the, a contemporary debate which is going on at the moment. Well, it's not even a debate because um, even among militant atheists like Sam Harris, the word spirituality seems to him the best word to describe these practices. Why is that so? Why, why does someone like Sam Harris use this uh, word spirituality? Because you could as well uh, talk about all the beneficial uh, effects of meditation and yoga without using this word. There must be a reason that uh, they also claim it as being a spiritual practice and there's something they must, they must mean with that. I think the fact is that spiritual practices are, are very attractive to people and fulfill yeah. a deep human need. And traditionally, people have a whole range of spiritual practices within the framework of religion. All religions combine a range of practices. For example, um, pilgrimage, one of the subjects I discuss in my book, uh -huh. occurs in Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and in many other religions as well. Um, similarly, um, meditation, singing and chanting, um, the, all these things are, are spiritual practices which people do as part of the practice of their religion. But when people become secularized and stop following a religion, um, then uh, they can still do these practices. And indeed, millions of people do uh, do these practices. For example, my wife, Jill Peirce, teaches chanting and meditation in a secular context. And yet these practices have been part of every religious tradition. And the people who come to her workshops and who get a great deal out of them, some of them are re religious and some of them are not. But uh, for all of them, it gives a feeling of connection, uh, both with tradition, with each other, and a sense of being in the flow, a kind of a, a, a sense of a spiritual connection. So um, I think that these are the reasons that people use the word spiritual. Um, 
And there are large numbers of people, at least in the English-speaking world, who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So um, I, I don't know if the words have slightly different connotations in Germany, but in, in Britain, um, spirituality is primarily about experience. It's about experiencing a sense of connection. And, and religion includes those experiences, but it's got a, a kind of larger framework of organization and structures and buildings and hierarchies and so on. Um, so spirituality is part of religion, but it can also be practiced outside a religious context. In your book, you talk about uh, a whole range of spiritual practice. Uh, you talk about seven different practices. You, you start with meditation, you go into deep gratitude, you talk about something that you call the more than human world. Uh, you talk about relationship to plants, rituals, something like sound and mantra. I think that you just mentioned also with the practice that your uh, wife is uh, uh, providing online. And then um, you mentioned already pilgrimage and, uh, and, and, hol and holy sites. I would like to maybe go through these different practices and talk to you both as a spiritual practitioner and as a scientist. In, in our secular time, in our secular culture, what can we say about uh, these different practices? Or why, why are they beneficial? Why are they important? And why do they have more than just a secular meaning maybe to them? And um, uh, if you agree to start with meditation, uh, yes. you write in your book, book that uh, meditation is uh, definitely the, the most widespread spiritual practice around and I mean it's, it's on the, the covers of the Time magazine, it's covered on the Spiegel magazine in Germany several, several times. Uh, organizations like Google uh, uh, allow the people to meditate for their own reasons. It, it's definitely something that is um, part of main culture at this point. Um, still why should we meditate and why should we see meditation meditation as a spiritual practice well um there are several reasons why we should or why people do meditate um and the scientific studies have shown several things first of all there are physiological effects people who meditate undergo a kind of relaxation response which deactivates the sympathetic nervous system to do with fear and anxiety and activates the parasympathetic nervous system to do with feeling more relaxed. That's one thing. Uh, that also reduces blood pressure um, and stress levels in the body, uh, which has health benefits. Um, people who meditate regularly usually sleep better and insomnia is one of the big problems in the modern world. Um, and what's more, people who meditate um, feel better um, and, you know, they feel their lives are working better. They're, these are all health benefits. There are also changes in the brain that occur during meditation, which have now been studied in detail with brain scans, which show that the default mode network, the region of brain activities concerned with the internal dialogue, with worries, with fantasies, with fears. Um, this becomes much less active during meditation. Other regions of the brain become more active. And people who meditate regularly, like Tibetan monks, actually undergo 
changes in the structure of their brain as a result of meditation. So there's no doubt whatever it has physiological and effects on the brain. So now, why is this spiritual rather than just health related? Um, well, in traditional cultures where meditation has been practiced, particularly Hinduism and Buddhism, um, the reason why people meditate there is not so they can be more successful in love and business and get better jobs and that sort of thing. The reasons a lot of people do it in a secular world. Um, they do it because they feel that um, there is an ultimate consciousness in the universe um, and that the that consciousness is reflected in all conscious beings, including ourselves. And that through meditation, when we become aware of the ground of consciousness itself, um, we link to the ground of all conscious being, God, the Buddha, uh -huh. Buddhahood, um, Satchitananda, as the Hindus put it, um, that we're forming a link with the divine and that that link is something that causes people to feel joyful because the, uh -huh. the ultimate divine consciousness is joyful. So that's the traditional reason for people doing it. Now, atheists may and materialists may say, well, all these are just sensations produced inside the brain. They're nothing but the effect of changes in neural activity and neurotransmitter levels. Um, well, they certainly there are changes in the brain. Um, so you can meditate and get these many of its benefits without believing there's anything beyond ourselves. But many people who meditate find that the experience they have of being part of a greater consciousness uh, suggests that we really are uh, connected to a greater consciousness. And then if you say, well, there's no such thing as a greater consciousness, then that's clearly a matter of belief. Um, and so the interpretation of meditation depends on your belief system. If you're a materialist and have a belief system that says the universe is made of unconscious matter, brains are made of unconscious matter and consciousness in some unexplained way emerges from unconscious matter in brains. All mental activity is inside heads. You can believe that. It's a belief system, uh, but you're not forced to believe it by your experience or even by science. Um, it's something you may choose to believe, but you may actually be persuaded through meditation itself and your experience that yeah. consciousness is more extensive than human brains. There really is um, a, a form of consciousness beyond the human level, in fact, underlying the universe. In fact, there may be many forms of consciousness beyond our own. If I may expand a little bit on this argument that you're bringing, uh, isn't it also so that uh, this connection that you are describing, this part of the meditative experience, independently in which context you are interpreting it, Uh, being part of something bigger, what in, in the Hindu tradition is Shatiyananda, is, 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 is Brahman, that this experience in some way also undercuts, I would suggest and ask what you think about that, our understanding of being just uh, separated individual identities who are related to a world of objects. The meditative experience Doesn't it challenge to a degree the way we in our European metaphysics understand uh, how the world looks like and what the world is? 
Well, I think it does change it. It changes if it if it gives us a greater sense of connection and a greater sense of an underlying consciousness. Then it certainly um, doesn't agree with the um, dominant philosophy of scientific materialism. Yeah. However, uh, European philosophy before um, the onset of scientific materialism in the 19th century, and especially before the onset of the mechanistic view of nature in the 17th century was much more holistic. So um, it can easily connect with the great mystical theologians of the Middle Ages or, or uh, the um, early monastic and contemplative traditions of Christianity uh, in the Western tradition, um, but not with materialist science. If I, if I may uh, continue to uh, the practice of gratitude that you're also describing, and um, I think everyone can uh, agree with you that uh, gratitude is something that um, is just a positive mindset. But do we understand you right that the spiritual dimension of gratitude, of course, starts with the gratitude to each other and gratitude to uh, people, to, to nature. But in the end, it's a it's an gratitude to the whole of existence. And if you see gratitude uh, in this dimension, it becomes very obvious that this has somehow a connection to uh, a spiritual practice. And also, again, it questions our assumption because if there's a deep gratitude for everything, there's the question, uh, if everything is just by chance, how can I be grateful for that? That in itself is a deep existential question. Is that the reason or one of the reasons why gratitude is something that you would call a spiritual practice? Well, I think it's a spiritual practice because it gives a sense of connection. Spiritual mm -hmm. practice is about the sense that we're connected to something greater than ourselves. And even if you take a completely secular materialist way of thinking, um, it's obvious that our existence depends ultimately on the entire universe. It depends on the whole evolutionary process. Um, the, the, if I sit down and feel grateful for what I'm about to eat in a meal, if I say grace before a meal or give thanks before a meal, at the very minimum, I'm grateful for the people who've cooked it, the farmers who've grown the food, the people who've transported the food, um, the people around me who support me in my life in, in, in so many ways. Um, we certainly uh, can feel grateful for the people who've done this. We can also feel grateful for the sunlight and the soil and the plants and the animals that give rise to our food um, and then uh, that doesn't require any necessary belief in anything beyond the material realm but if we have a belief system and uh, that takes us beyond a purely material world where we see the material world as actually a manifestation of a deeper spiritual reality um, coming forth from a spiritual source, then our gratitude can go further and go deeper. Um, so it's really the belief system, it, 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 all, everyone can be grateful, but the belief system that you have affects how far you go in your gratitude. Um, and um, so again, it's something open to everybody, uh, gratitude as a practice. And how far you go and perhaps how satisfying it is depends on how far you think reality goes. Is it just the physical observable universe or does it go beyond that? 
and then it becomes a more spiritual practice. But I think it's a spiritual practice, even if it's um, kept to the material level, it's still acknowledging that our own individual being is extremely limited compared with the entire history of the universe and the entire universe that sustains it and the solar system and the earth and the ecology of the earth that enables us to exist at all. If I may ask you about the modern human world, because also from a materialist scientific point of view, uh, we could agree, yeah, of course, there's uh, more than human world. There's the, the, the other plants, the other animals, the other stars, there's the cosmos. Uh, it seems you mean something particular when you talk about the more than human world. What are you talking about? Why is this a special practice? I'm really talking about the world of nature. Um, and the world of nature is more than human. Uh, because humans are only a small part of nature. We're only a small part of the evolutionary process. We're only a small part of the ecology of one planet in one solar system in one galaxy. So there's a vastly greater amount of reality in the world um, than the human realm. And um, the ways in which we connect with that greater reality can come about through a feeling of mystical connection with nature, just a, a sense of connection with something greater than ourselves. And for some people that happens through being in a beautiful scene or watching a sunset or climbing a mountain, looking at the view, or um, being a, a sense of the, the power of nature, looking at the sky, looking at the stars. There are many ways in which people have this sense of being part of something vastly greater than themselves. And the feeling that this greater than themselves being is not just inanimate matter that's ar ar arisen by chance, but there's a kind of conscious presence in it all. And spontaneous mystical experiences in nature are surprisingly common, according to surveys in Europe and America. And um, they often happen to children as well, who often have a sense of great connection with uh -huh. with nature and again i think this is a spiritual experience because it's emphasizing that we're connected to something much greater than ourselves uh -huh. and it's obviously literally true uh, even if you take the most materialistic interpretation of science the whole universe is vastly greater than we are we're part of something much bigger than ourselves but it becomes a direct conscious experience um uh, or can become one, and when it does, then it gives a sense that our own consciousness is part of something vastly greater. You made here a very distinct uh, distinction, uh, and maybe this is also the line where uh, one has the question, so is this still scientific? Because uh, every materialist scientist would agree with you, uh, yes, the world is much bigger than us, but you said something that everything somehow is conscious in this. And that's, of course, um, something that not many people uh, in the scientific community would follow you. And it seems uh, that this is an important uh, part of what you're describing when you're saying the more than human world. Can you say a little bit more about this, why and how this can be seen also from a scientific point of view as, yes, we are related to something conscious? Well, there's... Um there are two points here. First is the actual experience. When people have um, what they would call, what most people would call, and what I would call a mystical experience or a feeling of 
conscious presence in nature, they feel the presence of a greater consciousness than their own. This is not based on theory, it's based on experience. So that's the first point, that with, there's experience. It can happen even to children who've never studied philosophy and who don't know anything about variety, you know, different theories of nature. This sense they're part of something greater than themselves, part of a conscious being that's greater than themselves, not that it's just physically bigger than them, which obviously the universe is, um, but that there's some more to it than just physical size. There's also a conscious presence. So that the first point is that this is an actual experience, not a theory. Um, the second point is that within the sciences, there's a considerable discussion, especially at the moment, it's becoming increasingly intense, the debate about the nature of consciousness. The old style, strict materialist view is that the whole universe, the stars, the galaxies, the entire universe is totally unconscious. And even our brains are unconscious mechanisms like computers. But somehow consciousness emerges in our brains as a kind of shadow of the activity of the nervous system, that it doesn't do anything. That the official materialist view is that consciousness does nothing. It's simply there. Uh, some materialists say it doesn't even exist. It's nothing but an illusion. And it ought not to be there if the world is, as materialists say it is, made up entirely of unconscious matter or unconscious physical processes. Yet it exists, at least in our, us. And that is well known in the philosophy of mind as the hard problem. The very existence of consciousness in humans is a hard problem for materialism because it ought not to exist. So some philosophers try to explain it away uh, as an illusion or as an epiphenomenon of the activity of the brain. But an increasing number of um, neuroscientists and philosophers of mind, at least in the English-speaking world, are now um, seeing that the only way out of the hard problem is a form of panpsychism. Panpsychism means the idea that there's some kind of mind or consciousness everywhere in all matter, that even an electron or an atom has a low degree of mind or matter. And therefore, the appearance of consciousness in human and animal brains is not a kind of miraculous appearance of something out of nothing, but a difference of degree, not of kind. And that the entire universe has consciousness in or mind, which is like our own minds, probably mainly unconscious, um, uh, at all levels of nature, that atoms, molecules, cells, plants, animals, ecosystems, planets, um, stars like the sun, galaxies, may all have some kind of mind or consciousness. So if the sun has um, some kind of consciousness, and the entire galaxy, like a giant organism of which the stars are like cells in its body, may also have a kind of galactic mind. These minds may be, in fact must be, vastly greater than our own, and our own minds are actually inside the solar and the galactic minds, and the galactic mind in turn is inside the entire cosmic mind. So when we move into the philosophy of panpsychism, which is becoming quite fashionable among former materialists, um, it's surprising the, the speed at which this change is happening in, in thought about nature. Then there are many forms of consciousness beyond our own, 
um, and our own minds may connect with the consciousness behind the entire universe, but they may also connect with the consciousness of the Earth or of the solar system or of the galaxy. There are many levels of consciousness beyond our own. So that's the sense in which um, a, a theoretical understanding of nature may play a role in interpreting our experience. But just to come back to my first point, the sense of our own consciousness being part of something far greater than our own is to start with not a theory but an experience. Which I think is also important just to let in that uh, as you're describing it, it's not something that uh, someone has to think of. We experience this in many moments. And uh, as I hear you, uh, we just have to take serious what our experience is. I would yes, that's what I'm saying, that we yeah. take seriously our experience instead of dismissing it. Because if we dismiss our own experience, we dismiss it in, the the in favor of a theory, which is a belief system. The materialist theory is a belief system, an increasingly dogmatic belief system. And ultimately, ironically, the materialist theory says, well, we believe in science and science is empirical. Um, in other words, based on experience. Uh, science itself is ultimately based on experience. So it seems very odd to reject our own experience in favor of a theory about experience that comes from science. And science is itself empirical, but so is our own direct experience. It's the most direct experience we can possibly have. And therefore, I think we have to take it seriously. Yeah. We may just come also to, to the other spiritual practices that you're describing. Uh, and uh, you, you, you talk about the relationship to plants, you talk about rituals, you talk about sound and mantra, uh, and you talk about uh, holy sites, uh, pilgrimage to ho holy sites. Um, why are you collecting these seven um, forms of spiritual practice as you're describing it and, and, and say this is uh, a collection of practices that are important in our times as maybe uh, see them differently, also in our secular age. Particular things like rituals, mantra, pilgrimage, uh, sounds uh, something that is um, quite strange to a modern mind. Well, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, pilgrimage is undergoing a huge revival in Europe at the moment. Um, uh, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in Europe, the, the most popular one is the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. In 1987, when the footpath pilgrimage routes were reopened, the infrastructure was put in place. About 1,000 people walked there. Last year, 300,000 people walked there. Um, all sorts of people have been on the Santiago pilgrimage, and not all of them are devout Catholics. In fact, I suspect most people doing it are not devout Catholics. They include atheists, agnostics, and others. And here in Britain, there's um, an organization called the British Pilgrimage Trust, which is reopening the ancient footpath pilgrimage routes in Britain. And this has become a very popular movement, especially among young people. And I think one reason it's popular is because walking on a pilgrimage on footpaths through the countryside, not on roads, uh, is a way of connecting with nature, which itself has a healing effect. There's a lot of research showing that being outdoors, walking in the fresh air, connecting with nature, going through fields and woods is good for you. 
Um, it's also good for you to do something with a purpose. And a pilgrimage has a goal, the holy place that you're going to, which can be a temple, a cathedral, a mountain, a source of a river, um, an ancient tree, uh, an ancient uh, uh, megalithic monument. There are many kinds of holy places, a holy well, a spring. Um, and going with an intention to a holy place, it makes it a purposeful journey. There's also companionship if you go with somebody else. It's a very bonding experience. And when you arrive at the holy place, you're in a place where traditionally uh, people have given prayers and they've made prayers and given thanks. There's a connect and, and, and holy places are places that are believed traditionally to connect heaven and earth. Um, so you're in a holy place where others have had altered states of consciousness, which makes it more easy for you to have the same kind of altered state of consciousness, at least according to my own ideas on morphic resonance. Um, oh, so uh, I think that the, 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 the pilgrimage is, um, although it may seem archaic, um, one of the fascinating things about the modern world is the fact it's undergoing such a big revival. Mm. I, I very much agree. And uh, also, just to speak what you are describing, I spent a couple of days this summer in Assisi in Italy. And I have to say that uh, there was just something miraculous about this place. And I would like to ask you, I mean, you gave a hint, uh, uh, which I find very interesting, that there are also morphogenetic fields coming in place, because of course, a place like Assisi, uh, many people relate to it as a sacred place, as a place that uh, connects heaven and earth somehow. So when you go there, or when you are there, you're kind of tapping into this field of consciousness, where people are open to a different dimension. Is this the reason why sacred places, uh, one of the reasons why sacred places really seem to have a power uh, for at least many people? Well, I think some sacred places are numinous, have a kind of power in themselves, like I say, a mountaintop with an amazing view or a waterfall or a spring. There are certain natural places which are awe-inspiring, um, independent of their history with humans. But I think that the history of sacred places also plays a very important part. There's a kind of collective memory of that place when you go there that you tap into. Um, and the, my own ideas of morphic resonance really um, relate to the, the basis of collective memory. But you know, I don't, know, I don't want to base the whole of this just on my own theories. Um, the fact is that many people experience this kind of collective memory uh, phenomenon as an experience. Um, excuse me. Oh. Um, so, uh, yes, I think that the history of the place and the people who've been there before plays a, a very important part in it, as in Assisi, as in the great cathedrals or the great temples of India or um, other great holy places in the world. There's one of your spiritual practices that uh, uh, stood out for me uh, particular because on one hand, it seems so directly anti-modern and anti-rational and anti-Western enlightenment. Uh, but on the other hand, also there, uh, I can see there's something like a revival happening that the younger generation is all of a sudden interested in something that 
my generation, not many people they're interested in. This is rituals. Rituals seem so uh, medieval, and uh, I would even say in in, uh, in my generation there was there was still a kind of a, a liberation from old old rituals of culture, society, and religion. But there seems to be a revival of rituals. Well, what is it? Well, what's the power of rituals? Why? Why is this there? Why is there a revival of this? Or is there even a revival from your point of view? Well, I think there's certainly uh, an increasing interest in, in, in rituals. And rituals are powerful precisely because they um, show a continuity over time and they connect us over time with those who've gone before. Part of the, again, coming back to the spiritual practice, part of it's about the sense of connection. And when you take part in a ritual that's been done many times before, it can be a secular ritual like the American Thanksgiving dinner. That's a national ritual. It can be a religious ritual like the celebration of, say, one of the great uh, Shivaratri or Daga Puja in India. It can be um, um, a shared meal ritual like the Passover of Jewish people or the Holy Communion of Christians. These are all ritual acts, um, and they refer back to historical events, the settling of North America, you know, the, the events in the past in Hinduism in rather mythic time, the escape of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt, the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. These rituals are reenactments of uh, seminal events in the history of the group or of the culture. And by taking part in them, people connect with those who've done it before. There's a sense of connecting with ancestors right back through many generations, um, which gives us a sense of being rooted in something much more than just our own lives in the 21st century. Um, so rituals have this sense of connection through time. And by morphic resonance, my own ideas on morphic resonance suggest that there's a kind of connection through resonance when something's done in a similar way to the way it's been done before. Rituals are by their nature conservative. They involve ritual languages like Sanskrit. Um, um, they involve ritual actions, ritual chants, uh, often happen in ancient sacred places like cathedrals or temples. Um, all of these things help connect the present participants with those who've done them before and make the past uh, literally present. There's a presence of the past through the ritual, which gives a sense of connection over time and connection over generations and connection with many other people who've done that ritual. And again, this gives us a sense of being uh, part of something much greater than ourselves. In the modern secular world, many people are uprooted from religious traditions, so they have no sense of connection across time with their ancestors. They've rejected ancestral religions, so they're cut off from uh, what could be a source of strength for them, a, a relationship to whole many generations of ancestors going back in you know, hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and they, 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 they have, we have an individualistic culture which emphasizes individual separation and fragmentation. The result of that is that many people feel isolated, lonely, and because they're lonely and isolated and 
think they live in a meaningless materialistic universe, they get depressed, which is why um, the endemic disease of modern secular societies is depression, and which is why millions and millions of people all over Europe and America are on antidepressant pills. Um, so I think the point about these spiritual practices, they're all about connection, um, uh, different kinds of connection, which is why in my book I deal with such a wide range of spiritual practices, because uh, there are many different ways of being connected. Um, if we don't have these connections, we're likely to be separated, unhappy, uh, and depressed. If we do, we're likely to be happier, healthier, and live longer, which is why spiritual and religious practices have such benefits. Listening to you and also coming to the end of our, our time here, it seems, we, as you just said, that the essence that you're describing in the seven different spiritual practices, practices that you are describing is in some way or the other uh, us being connected to something bigger than us. Would you, uh, would you describe from a kind of scientific perspective this as the essence of what spiritual practice really does? Yes, I think so. Being this sense of direct conscious connection with something bigger than ourselves. And, and if you think about it, meditation gives that, chanting gives that through a connection both with the group you're chanting with and also the tradition, especially if you're chanting mantras or prayers that have been used many times before. You know, all these pilgrimage gives you that sense of connection with holy places where others have been before and roots that others have followed and a connection with nature. Connection with the more than human world, with plants, are all about connection as well. And gratitude is all about connection too. It's about the recognition that we're part of a flow. We receive so many things. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask my parents to have me. I didn't ask the people who looked after me as a baby to look after me. They just gave me all these things. I'm, I'm given without doing anything about it, I'm born into a world which has food and light and air and beautiful flowers. All these things uh, are just given to me. They're gifts. And when we acknowledge gifts, our gratitude enables a flow to take place. Uh, gratitude is like giving something back, even if it's just a word of thanks. It's, and, and so if we don't acknowledge things, then we just take and nothing flows through us, nothing flows back. And um, and that leads to a sense of isolation, disconnection, and it can lead to a sense of entitlement or taking everything for granted, uh, which is a state of mind which makes people unhappy. It makes them much more likely to complain than to give thanks. And that makes them less popular with other people and more disconnected, more isolated, and yet more unhappy. So. Um, we see here a whole series of practices which can actually help us lead better lives and which I think are more true to the nature of the reality in which we live. Robert Sedek, uh, we are at the end of our time and I uh, thank you very much uh, for describing at least some points of uh, your thoughts about uh, spiritual practice in our scientific uh, materialist time. I, I think you've made a strong argument why they're important and why they're more than just uh, health engagement. Um, of course, uh, there's much more in your book, and uh, we uh, have on our website also the link to your book. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening.
well thank you thomas and very good to be with you